Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. FC Cincinnati, the newest member of Major League Soccer, left an impression that will not soon be forgotten. It couldn't have gone much better had it been scripted. I know at times I can be cynical and critical and negative, but this was a feel-good moment. It might not last forever. You know, it might not even last past next week. But for now, FC Cincinnati, you bathe in that positive first impression. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking FC Cincinnati's big party. We will have our Mossy Makes the Case segment on Ronaldo and the Champions League. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment with the 24-team Club World Cup and a look at Chris Wondolowski's legacy and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you today, Mossy? I greet you from the East Coast. I'm in New York City. I am in my hotel room overlooking a spectacular day here in Manhattan. I was out here doing the NYCFC game, and it's just a beautiful day here on the East Coast. How are you there over on the uh, on the West Coast today? We're still bringing you the pod, even though we are in different places. I am good. Uh, we miss you here in the studio, but it is a beautiful day in Los Angeles as well, coming off an exciting weekend. So uh, excited to be with you today. Did you do anything this weekend, anything interesting that you think the uh, listeners slash viewers might be interested in? No, I did my usual hike on uh, Sunday afternoon. I also watched a lot of sports, a lot of soccer, and also a little college hoops. Uh, I watched uh, my beloved Michigan Wolverines lose for a third time this season to our uh, in-state rivals, Michigan State. But that blow was softened a little bit by the selection show in which uh, Michigan was handed what looks on paper to be a fortuitous draw. So uh, I am ready for March Madness to start. Very exciting time of year. Who do your Wolverines of Michigan play in this uh, March Madness situation? Uh, we kick things off Thursday evening against Montana. We are the uh, two seed in our region. Montana is the 15th seed. Oh, that should be no problem, right? Uh, that should be no problem. <laughs> All right. Well, I wish you and your team uh, well in the, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the tournament going forward. All right, listen, we got a lot of soccer to get to this week. Both coasts all around the world. Ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, let's go. As always, we start the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. You only get one chance to make a first impression. And in their first ever home game, FC Cincinnati, the newest member of Major League Soccer, left an impression that will not soon be forgotten. 
in front of a sold-out 32,000-plus on national television. They beat up on last year's MLS Cup finalists, the Portland Timbers, 3-0. It couldn't have gone much better had it been scripted. It was wonderful to see a stadium in Ohio packed with knowledgeable and fervent soccer fans embracing and celebrating their club's outstanding performance on the field and their city's passionate soccer culture off the field. Instead of that soft launch over multiple years that we've come to expect from some MLS expansion teams waiting for their new stadium to be built, so far Cincinnati has treated us to a dynamic, entertaining, and successful product that in the past couple of weeks has taken points off of Portland and Atlanta. I know at times I can be cynical and critical and negative, but this was a feel-good moment. It might not last forever. You know, it might not even last past next week. But for now, FC Cincinnati, you bathe in that positive first impression. Let it inform and motivate and fuel you as you grow even bigger. You're not Atlanta, Minnesota, Orlando, and you're definitely not Columbus. You're Cincinnati. And you've announced the MLS version of yourself with authority, style, and personality. But there are those who would have you believe that this is not authentic soccer fandom that this is not authentic soccer culture, that this is not authentic soccer, that this is manufactured or plastic or inorganic. There are those who want to tear down Major League Soccer and the system to start anew and satisfy some twisted sense of what they think soccer in America should look like. But what we saw in Cincinnati is soccer in America. It's unique, it's beautiful, and it's here to stay. All right, Mossy, that was a kinder and gentler type of State of the Union. I was, uh, I, I like to think, very, very positive because it, 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 it hit me uh, watching this game and watching this, this culture that, to be fair, has been around for a while in Cincinnati, but the MLS version of it was just multiplied by you know, three and four and five times, and it was wonderful to see it. As I say, oftentimes it, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to see something like this. What were your thoughts on the, uh, the first home experience, not just the game, but the experience of FC Cincinnati? No, I felt the same way. And look, we've seen expansion teams like LAFC and Atlanta United that were shot out of a cannon. And then we've seen the Minnesota Loons, who've opted for the so-called soft launch. Ahead of this season, in talking about Cincinnati, you said that you were getting more of a Minnesota vibe out of them. Uh, Have you changed your mind on that? Did you misjudge uh, how good they could be in season one and the, the sort of buzz that they could create? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a question of, and not that it matters to the Cincy folks, uh, how good is this team as opposed to how bad Portland was uh, and continues to be now in multiple uh, situations. But it, it really doesn't matter. So, yes, I am surprised that they are more competitive than we have seen in the past. And I shouldn't be because they have done a good job, I think, of finding players that understand the league on and off the field and can grind out results and then adding some really interesting pieces. I'm not sure I yet see this team as a playoff type of team, but I don't think that it's in the historic nature that Minnesota was in terms of how poor they were over their first couple of years uh, of existence. And look, this is these are salad days. These are these are good times, and that's why I say they should celebrate them because everybody knows, no matter who you are in Major League Soccer, you are going to have uh, you're going to have problems. But you know that that should not deter them, and that should not that should not stop anybody from being impressed as to what they did on the field. And the only thing maybe more impressive was uh, what they did off the field with the march to the match and uh, that, that stadium being incredibly full and sold out. And it just, it just great scenes and great pictures and a wonderful message to send for 
the uh, the city, for that team, for the league, and for soccer. Now, Don Garba's had to answer this question a lot lately. Do you think MLS has made it a little too easy for expansion teams to be good right away? Should some of these new teams have to, quote-unquote, pay their dues a little bit more? No. I think that this is a league that is built on parity and manufactured parity, and I think that that is seen in the way that they give aid to incoming teams and expansion teams in the form of money. And the league, as we as we said, just in general, has the ability for teams to go from worst to first and doesn't have the haves and the have-nots. There is some separation, but no, I, I, I think, you know, once again, it goes back to my State of the Union. You only get, you know, one chance to make that first impression. And you know, that they bolster the opportunity for teams. And not all of them, not all the teams take that opportunity and use it well, or they take it or they don't use it well. Uh, I, I don't, I, I see no problem with that. I don't want an expansion team coming in and the first experience that that, that city and that culture gets is one of ineptitude uh, and or defeat in what is going on and the product that they are being given because you want them hooked and the way you get people hooked is the experience off the field of going to the game and you couple it and then you're 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 cooking with a an exciting and entertaining brand of soccer it doesn't mean you have to win every single game but you have to be competitive right from the get-go and we've seen teams that haven't done that but this at least so far so good from Cincinnati. Now, it's interesting. Some franchises get the temporary home thing right. Uh, That was a great atmosphere this weekend, felt like a great setting for a game. And then Cincinnati are going to have another big opening in 2021 when they move into their soccer-specific stadium. The same was true of Atlanta in 2017. They essentially had two big home openers, one at Bobby Dodd Stadium and then Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, If you watched the other part of our FS1 doubleheader on Sunday, you saw the other side of that coin. It's actually the match you called. NYCFC are still playing their matches at Yankee Stadium, which we all agree is just an awful setting for a soccer game. It looks so ugly on TV. This has frankly become an embarrassment for the league. MLS has passed this, and there's a lot of questions being raised about whether they should have even been given a team if their stadium situation was so dodgy. Uh, you were there this week, and what do you make of that whole deal? Yeah, so I was in what I what I have to admit um, is the most uh, the least welcoming, the most inhospitable, and the most difficult environment to, I think, play in, call from a broadcasting perspective, and at this point, watch a game in, and that is Yankee Stadium and NYCFC. The The thrill is gone, Mossy. The thrill of going to Yankee Stadium to watch this team um, has completely, in, in, in my mind, dissipated. Now, it's not necessarily affecting their numbers. They're still getting good crowds there, but it's just a it's just a bad environment right now. And, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to Bob Bradley um, before the game and, you know, trying to, you know, his thoughts about about it. And, you know, Bob will tell you his thoughts on everything. And at times he will tell you uh, if he has a complaint about something. And from his perspective and, and you know, his, the way that he wants his LAFC team to play, he recognizes that in that type of environment with the narrow constraints and just the way that it plays narrow – it's not conducive sometimes for teams to play the way the way that they want. Now Bob will 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 say, and it's subjective, that he wants to play a much more beautiful brand of soccer that requires much more expanse when it comes to the field um, and a much more traditional type of setting. And they can't do that, and that that hurts him from his team perspective. It also hurts us in terms that we are denied the full effect of a team because of it. And look, it doesn't mean that. 
that people that teams can't have home field advantages. But I think this is this at times is a disadvantage to NYCFC as much as anybody else. They they don't enjoy it. Yes, they adapt and they figure out a way to play on it. But it's something that. When the when this team came into the league, we were promised that there was going to be a stadium. And look, Mossy, you, you've you've spent plenty of time around here. You know that that's easier said than done, and it's easy to spend other people's money, and it's easy to say, "Why don't you just go get a place?" Well, finding land and finding a footprint that you can put a stadium in New York City and in the metropolitan New York area is very very difficult. It uh, one thing is the cost, and the second thing is actually finding it and getting it approved to be able to do that. That that's been their charge, and that's their job. That's Claudio Reyna's and everybody's job over there to figure that out. And they said that they've made headway, but it's getting sold now, Mossy, to uh, to play in a game there, to watch a game there, and from my perspective, to call a game there from a broadcasting uh, perspective. Now that segues nicely to Miami. News broke recently that while their uh, Beckham's team, while they're trying to get their stadium situation sorted, they now want to use Lockhart Stadium, the old uh, Miami Fusion home, as their temporary stadium for a couple of seasons. What do you make of that news? I have. It's so old, Lockhart, that I have scored in Lockhart um, many, many years ago uh, when Miami Fusion was playing there. Uh, it's a little strange because. And, and not because you can't have facilities that are outside the name of your team. There's plenty of teams that, that do that. But there was so much focus and energy, and it was championed by both uh, the Miami folks and the league, that this was going to be a true and authentic Miami team. That's where the stadium was going to be. This was going to be different than in the past where you you had the Miami Fusion, even though they played in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, look, I don't claim to be an expert on Florida. I've been down there many, many times. And this you know, this massive distance now between where they are going to play, once again, that soft launch flag gets put up there in my mind. because, And especially because of how important Miami, the the quote-unquote Miami, has been to this. And if ultimately this is another soft launch and we have to wait a couple years before it is actually a Miami team in that it is playing in Miami in order to get that stadium done, that's fine. But with the history that we have in Lockhart, we uh, we know that while while the Miami team used to play there, when contraction happened, when the league was at its lowest point, Miami is one of the teams that went away. Not necessarily because it played in Fort Lauderdale, but for a number of different reasons. But it was a Miami team that was playing in Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale which are two two different cities. They're close to each other, but they're different cities. So I think it, I think it's a little strange. I think it looked strained in terms of the announcement, <laughs> uh, in that they knew that they were doing something that they would come in for criticism for. Um, it was amazing to see the relic that Lockhart Stadium has become with the weeds and everything. It was, um, you know, it, it was once a you know, look, it was a glorified high school-esque type of environment, even if even at the best of times. But, you know, now it's got, uh, you know, over, weeds and, and bushes and, and all that kind of stuff. And then they can clean it up and make it kind of a satellite Miami place that after they move into a real stadium in actually in Miami, that becomes uh, something that they can use to train and do that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm OK with that. But it was a little bit of a head scratcher specifically for the Miami situation. Uh, just to circle back to Cincinnati, I'll end on this. Uh, you took a little pot shot at Columbus in your monologue, reigniting that feud you have with Columbus fans. Cincinnati, uh, they faced Columbus twice in August. Are those like circle the date on the calendar games for you? Or do you think this could be like the next great rivalry in the league? 
Wait a second. What 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 pot shot did I take at uh, at Columbus? I, I I lose track of them all. What are you referring to? So our listeners understand. You said Cincinnati. You're not Minnesota. You're not Orlando, and you're definitely not Columbus. <laughs> well, they're definitely not Columbus. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think that there is going to be a rivalry, and and I think it's going to be fun to see with you know the the nouveau riche type of Cincinnati environment that we have, one that is has been so impactful that I'm that I did my State of the Union on it. Um, versus the historic and traditional and original type of Columbus crew being one of those originals from 96 and then going through what they went through over the past year, you know, this inner Ohio type, Ohio type of rivalry, um, they're going to have to bring it. They're going to have to bring it in terms of the environment that they create in the, in the stadium, both home and away, and they're going to have to bring it in terms of the numbers, you know, I know often we are told size doesn't matter, but I'll tell you what, if it is just a completely different scenario when it comes to the amount of traveling fans uh, or the amount of fans just in general that are in each of those stadiums when they're playing each other, that is going to be used and that is going to fuel the fire and fuel the feud between the two. But I think it's a good thing to have this uh, have this rivalry and I look forward to seeing what the, uh, the old guard, if you will, of Columbus crew can do to stifle the nouveau riche both on the field uh, and off the field in terms of the environment. You got anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, my friend. Uh, well, we'll see what happens with Cincinnati uh, with this team that, is, uh, that has come out and uh, raised a lot of eyebrows in a good way in terms of the way that they're playing. And we also look forward to seeing how that culture continues to evolve. And as I said, it's a culture in Cincinnati that's been around for a number of years and it's just grown bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and under this, this new MLS type of banner, uh, it's really going to be interesting to see. I cannot wait to get there to actually experience firsthand what it's like to go to a FC Cincinnati game. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, Mossy, from over there on the West Coast? My case is if you come at the king, you best not miss. Diego Ooh. Simeone found that out the hard way in this season's Champions League. Atletico could have beaten Juventus by better than a 2-0 scoreline in that first leg, but they left the door open, and Ronaldo took full advantage. He bagged a second-leg hat-trick. Juve advanced, while Atletico's dreams of contesting the final at their home stadium went up in smoke. Now, the quarterfinals are set, and there are four English teams left, and that's been a big talking point, rightly so. There's a growing sense that this might finally be the year that a Premier League team can win the Champions League for the first time since 2012 when Alex Dowd's Chelsea fluked their way to the title. But all four (laughs) of those English teams are still going to have to contend with Messi and Ronaldo. And I was thinking about this during that Juventus-Atletico second leg. Ronaldo feels like the defending champion in this season's Champions League, more so than Real Madrid ever did. His hands are the ones you're going to have to pry the trophy away from. If and when he's eliminated, that's when the holder will have been dethroned. Uh, And next to try is Ajax. We'll go over all the matchups, but I can't wait. I think it's going to be very exciting. Was this in any way 
I mean, it's kind of a stupid question, but that's what I specialize in. Was this in any way a surprise to you, what Ronaldo did on the night? And should we be surprised anymore with what he, or or Messi for that matter, uh, do? But he did it in the context of Juventus. And was that surprising to you? Yeah, it added a different wrinkle to it. I mean, if this had come with Real Madrid, it would have been business as usual for him. But going to a new team, you were wondering if that magic was going to translate, and it clearly did. So, yeah, I suppose right, it was what, a little so, bit... So what are the matchups again? So let's go through them. Now, uh, let me make a big picture point here. I believe clearly the four best teams in Europe this season in some order have been Barcelona, Juventus, Liverpool, and Manchester City. So there's there's different schools of thought when it comes to a draw. A lot of people thought this was a boring draw. I liked it because those four teams were kept apart and it created the possibility for a dream semifinal. So the matchups are Juventus-Ajax, Liverpool-Porto, Barcelona-Manchester United, and Manchester City, Tottenham, the question becomes, uh, will any of those big four that I mentioned get picked off in this round? And uh, I, mean, I mean, just to go through it with you, uh, the one that I think there's zero chance is Liverpool-Porto. Uh, I think you can pencil in Liverpool in the semifinals. Ajax, I think people are overrating their upset potential over Juventus. A lot of people have made this comparison between this Ajax team and the Monaco team two seasons ago with Mbappe and Thomas Lamar and Bernardo Silva and Fabinho and Bakayoko, etc. And I think it's an apt comparison. But remember, that Monaco team, their run ended against Juventus, a Juventus team that has the same coach as this one and a lot of the same players. Juve knows how to face these kinds of teams. They'll slow down those games. They'll take away the spaces that guys like Tadic and Nettis and Ziyech need to uh, shine. So, uh, listen, I'll give Ajax a puncher's chance, but I-, I think Juve are overwhelming favorites in that tie. So I think you're looking at the two other ones as possibilities, Manchester City, Tottenham, and Barcelona United, and we can zero in on those if you'd like. I'll say this about City, Tottenham. Uh, I know Spurs have been struggling in the league, but I always think facing a team from your country in Europe makes for a quirky dynamic. Plus, uh, Tottenham's new stadium is a giant X factor. They are going to finally play in that new ground uh, for their home leg. And I just think, you know, Liverpool beat City in this round last season. Chelsea famously eliminated the Arsenal Invincibles in the quarterfinals in 2004. That was uh, way before Alex Dowd's time. He wasn't even born yet. So I'd, I'd be a little leery if I was Manchester City. I think this is actually a bit of a scarier tie than people think against Tottenham. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you see any chance of Tottenham eliminating Manchester City over two legs? No, I still think that Manchester City gets it done. I think all the big ones get it done. So, uh, so I'm I'm not picking any of them to have upsets. Uh, you know, I love this IX team, and I think everybody has has you know eyes wide open, and and they deserve incredible amount of praise. But I think that this this is where this is where it stops. So, so that so that my final four would be Juve, Liverpool. Man City and what was the last one? Did you left? say Barcelona? Yeah, Barcelona. Yeah, and just and just to hit on that tie for one second. Listen, I know United have lost a couple in a row here, and a lot of people think the bloom is off the rolls for uh, Rose for Solskjaer. But I just feel like, and of course, I think Barcelona are going to go through. But I give United a bit more of a chance than others are giving them, only because I think this Barcelona team is more vulnerable than people realize. I know I'm hard on them. I judge them by a very high standard. I mean, they're running away with La Liga. They're in the Copa del Rey final. They're in the last eight of the Champions League. They're winning games 5-1 in the Champions League knockout stage. So what's the problem? 
Um, but I, I just think I think that second leg against Lyon was a bit of a microcosm of their season. In the end, it, the scoreline looks incredibly impressive, 5-1. It makes it seem like they blew them away. That game was 2-1 in the 70-something minute with Barcelona looking very flat in the second half, Lyon getting some good chances, that stadium very nervous, and then Messi got a goal like against the run of play in the 80th minute to calm everybody down, and they tacked on two more at the end to make it 5-1 and look like it was a rout. But I don't know. If you, if you watch closely, you can see some flaws there that United might be able to exploit. It looks like Dembele might be out for these games. They're a different team with him on the field. They're much more explosive with him rather than Coutinho. And so I, I would give United a, a, a puncher's chance here. But you, you don't. You think this is Barcelona all the way. I do. Now, what would you rather, who would you like to have in the final? I mean, do you, do you think about, dare we think about a Ronaldo Messi final? Well, and, you know, what they do now with the quarterfinal draw is they also set up who would face who in the semis. So we know that that is a possibility uh, because it's going to be the uh, Juve Ajax winner against the Tottenham Man City winner in the semis and then the Liverpool Porto winner against the Barcelona United winner. So Barcelona and Juve were kept on opposite sides of the draw. So that, that is a possibility. Also, a lot of people are excited about the possibility of a, of a Man City Barcelona final, a Pep against Barcelona. Those, those seem to be the two sort of quote unquote dream finals that are out there. But I, I think if, if the big four that I mentioned move on, then any combination will be great. Any combination of Juve, Man City, Liverpool, or Barcelona would be fantastic. Let me just- Oh, uh, come on, Mossy. Come Come on, you got to answer the question. No, no, of, I of want course, Juventus. I want Juventus Barcelona. What do you want? Of course, I, I, I'm there too. Yeah, Messi Ronaldo okay, would be okay. amazing. Now, let me just say one one last point on the Barcelona United tie. Like, I, I know we live in a in a Premier League uh, world, and and United are like the glamour team, and so you're, you're trying to convince anybody that it's a bad thing to have Manchester United left on a competition is it, a tough sell. But I have to say, uh, the way this draw played out made me even more annoyed about that PSG United second leg because I think PSG threw that away more so than United won it. I think PSG is the better team. And if you think the draw would have played out the same exact way, that means we would have had PSG Barcelona in the quarterfinals. And Neymar would have been back for that, it looks like. He's way ahead of schedule. He's going to start training next week. And for me, as a neutral, I don't know how you feel about this, but Neymar, Mbappe, and PSG against Barcelona would have been bonkers. I would have rather that personally than Barcelona United. How do you feel about that? But wait a second. Didn't you just tell me that 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 you didn't think the Barcelona win was as emphatic as the scoreline? The, the scoreline was flattering, and yet you think that Manchester United, you didn't think that they could go through. So, so which one of the uh, which one which team is bad? Barcelona or Manchester United? Uh, no, I think the Barcelona United tie. Everybody's just giving it to Barcelona. I give. I think United has a puncher's chance there, but I think PSG Barcelona would have been there. There is a a clear cut favorite in that Barcelona United tie. Well, I think had PSG taken care of business against United and rolled into that quarterfinal with Neymar fit and Mbappe, that would have made for a greater spectacle for me. Uh, PSG going up against Barcelona. Uh, than United will. I mean, personally. Yeah, but, but I mean, why, I know well, why do you people... give them a why do you give them a punter's chance if if you just told me that that it was just a you know a fluke and a soccer god type of thing uh, against PSG? I don't I don't see those statements as being mutually exclusive. I can I can think <laughs> United have a puncher's chance against Barcelona, but that PSG would have made for a better tie. I don't see the issue there. Um, but uh, and just to end on this, uh, the Europa League draw as well occurred. Some pretty good matchups there. Uh, the best one, Arsenal will face Napoli, uh, which should be fun. Alex Dowd's Chelsea will take on Slavia Prague, is it? 
uh, boy, th- th- this Chelsea path uh, in the Europa League, I mean, it, it makes Man City's path in the FA Cup look like a baton death march. Um, and then you have uh, <laughs> an all-Spanish Valencia Villarreal and then uh, Benfica against Frankfurt, which is fun because, first of all, Frankfurt are the only German team left. So we at Fox are kind of jumping on that bandwagon because we need a German team to do well in Europe. And then it's Luka Jovic going up against his parent club. Jovic has been the sensation in the Bundesliga this season. He's getting linked with Barcelona now. And, and he's actually a Frankfurt player on loan from Benfica. So he's going to face Benfica in this uh, Europa League quarterfinal. So Europa League should be fun as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to all of it getting underway next month. All right. Well, look, this uh, this Champions League has thrown up plenty of surprises along the way. And despite the fact that we're both picking no more surprises to happen, who knows uh, what's what what, uh, what what's next for us, what the soccer gods are going to do next for us. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right. Thank you, as always. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for our Ask Alexi segment, that segment where you use the hashtag Ask Alexi. You send us some questions, comments, concerns, and David Mossy, as he is about to do, will read them out on the podcast. What do they want to know this week, Mossy? First up, at Joe, biggest surprise of the MLS season so far? Well, I mean, look, we talked about Cincinnati. I don't think a lot of people saw them being as competitive as quickly, um, so I think that's a surprise. From, from the opposite end, I mean, San Jose right now, it would not surprise me in the least if Almeida, the coach of San Jose, said, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, and I probably have some really good offers different places, and if he... I will be surprised if he lasts the season uh, over there in, uh, in, in San Jose. Um, let's see, other surprises... Well, you know, I don't think it, well, Atlanta, because this is MLS, Atlanta, Atlanta struggling and coming in for plenty of criticism, especially Frank DeVore, is, is not necessarily surprising because this is what this league will do, will do to you. But the level at which they played last year, I think we're just seeing more and more how, how much it was determined by the play of Miguel Almiron. It's not that Miguel Almiron is irreplaceable, but... The way that this team played when he did what he did is very different than the way this team plays when his replacement, Pitti Martinez, plays. They're both very, very, they're both world-class players. They're very good. They just play so differently that everything has had to change and adjust with the loss of Almiron. And, you know, Tata Martino and all that kind of stuff, I know that's a, an adjustment from a coaching perspective. But, you know, those are those are some things, some things right now. The continuation of DC United, uh, I'll be honest, I thought it was more of an aberration and a blip with what happened second half of last season. But they have managed to continue on uh, Wayne Rooney continuing to score, got a hat trick this weekend. That's been a a pleasant surprise to see that uh, to see that continue on. So right now, you know, look, it's it's early days in MLS, and so what is surprising us now might not be as surprising later on, and can completely reverse as we get through the dog days of summer and uh, into the uh, the business end of the as they say of the season come fall. Uh, next up at Dahir seven six nine. What do you think of FIFA's 2014 Club World Cup? All right, so explain to the people there, Mossy, about the uh, the Club World Cup. All right, so FIFA just held this council meeting in Miami. We'll talk more about it in the back three segment as well. Uh, but one of the things that came out of it is they are pushing forward with this plan for a 2014 Club World Cup, even though UEFA is violently opposed to it and is threatening to sue FIFA over it. But so this would essentially, we would get rid of the annual Club World Cup we have now and the Confederations Cup 
And this would take the place of the Confederations Cup on the calendar. It would occur every four years, the summer before the National Team World Cup. And it's uh, 24 teams, eight groups of three, and then the eight group winners advance, setting up quarterfinal, semifinal, and final. The format could evolve as the years go forward, but at least initially, the first version in 2021 would be 24 teams. The field would be comprised of eight European teams, six South American, three each from CONCACAF, Africa, and Asia, and then one Oceania team. So, so that is the proposal on the table. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of it? Well, then it's, you said it's replacing also uh, Confederations Cup, right? Correct. Well, I mean, so that doesn't that doesn't help anybody except for the organizer. If there if it's happening in where the the World Cup is going to be, one of the reasons why Confederations Cup was it was this dry run where whatever whatever country was organizing could get a miniature version of it and they could test some different things and make sure that they were ready for the fall for the following year. So it helps the 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 country in that there's a big tournament happening that they can use as a template for what happens in the World Cup, but it doesn't help the actual national teams that benefited from going and getting the lay of the land in the place where that they were going to play uh the 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 following summer if they qualified. So that that but that's neither here nor there. I just look at it as this is an awesome summer tournament uh, that involves, obviously, club teams. And there's going to be, uh, because there's more numbers, a bigger chance to involve some North American teams, including MLS teams. So I'm I'm all for that. Right now, we know that the winner of CONCACAF Champions League, and we've talked about this on the pod, the, 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 the need and the desire for an MLS team in the modern form to win it. Uh, and get that opportunity to go to the Club World Cup. Club World Cup has always been kind of out of sight, out of mind, even though it's been something to achieve and to attain and, and a prize and, and worthy of distinction But from the teams that go. When it actually happens, it, you know, it, it often happened, as I said, out of sight, out of mind. This would give it much, a much higher profile, obviously a bigger field of teams and more teams going. I think I think that this is a win. I think that this is something that happens. Uh, with with the caveat, and you mentioned it, <laughs> the club teams are not real happy about this. And, you know, in this day and age, uh, when soccer people get angry, they sue. Whether it's domestically or internationally, that's what they do. So they still got a long way to go because it doesn't do... It doesn't do FIFA or this tournament any good not to have the best teams in the world participate in it. Yeah, I would say I'm way less protective of the Club World Cup than I am the National Team World Cup. Uh, One is the greatest sporting event in the world, which has been around for 90 years. The other is a Mickey Mouse tournament that uh, only Dave Denholm seems to care about. Uh, So if Infantino (laughs) wants to mess with this, I'm not going to get as riled up. But just two issues I would raise is I don't know what Infantino's fascination is with three-team groups. So here we are again talking about a tournament where he wants to do eight groups of three. And we're back to the same issue we have with the uh, National Team World Cup, which we'll talk about in a bit, of groups of three. And then the other thing is that club football operates on an annual basis. And so it's a little odd to me to crown a club world champion every four years. You know, it makes a little bit more sense with the national teams, but I don't know how you're going to count for the teams that win the uh, Champions Leagues in their regions over the course of all those years. So I'd have to hear more about who's going to be involved in this competition, how you qualify for it. And is there going to be like a real sense that whoever uh, one that is the club world champion, or it just sort of luckily landed on a year for them where they had just won <laughs> their regional championship. So I, I don't know. I, I need to, to to learn more about this. But well, I, I guess at the outset, I'm not like as violently opposed to this as I am to the other one. But. Well, I just, I, you know, I just, you were mentioning the, the three-team group type of situation. And I agree with you that it completely changes the approach and the strategy and the philosophy of tournament play and traditional tournament play that we know has groups of four. However, However, 
you know, keep in mind that in a day and age where we talk so much about burning players out and having so many games, you know, this is a summer tournament now involving uh, club teams that normally would be on break and the players would be resting and relaxing. So in a group of three type of situation, there's only two games that you're actually playing in that group sense. And so it could happen in a much smaller and and uh and, and quicker time span than a overall World Cup because there's only two group games and then you move on to, you know, whatever, if they're going to do a round of eight or whatever it ends up uh, being ultimately uh, in terms of the final. So that may, that might mitigate some of the, uh, the wear and tear that inevitably is going to happen to these teams and to the individual players. All right, next up, at TV at work, could use your help on a debate. Is it fair that Wando's miss versus Belgium defines his career to so many? He would be talking about Chris Wondolowski, a Major League Soccer legend on the verge of becoming the uh, all-time leading goal scorer if, uh, if, if Almeida ever finds a way to actually uh, have them score uh, a boat, boatload of goals uh, or even some goals, and, and certainly if he's involved. Is it fair? Well, as I say often, and uh, I believe this, uh, soccer isn't fair and life isn't fair. And so it's not about being fair. I mean, is it fair that, who's the guy? Bill Buckner, right? Uh, the, the dude from uh, the Red Sox, is that his name? Correct. All right. Is it fair that he's defined by the ball that went through his legs? Unless you have the opportunity to make up for a, a, a iconic and historical type of mistake uh, or failure or miss, you're always going to be defined by that. I mean, well, that's not necessarily true. But, you know, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Roberto Baggio missed a penalty kick in the World Cup final. He's not defined by that. Uh, But he did so many other things that I think that's what, what covers it up. But yeah, I mean, it's is it fair? No, but there's all sorts of things in life that aren't fair in terms of how we perceive people and things, and um, the and that that perception that can take over what the reality of a situation is and what the truth of the situation is. So I don't know. Do you think it's fair, Mossy? Well, let me just say the silver lining for Bill Buckner is he got to guest star many years later in one of the top five greatest Kirby enthusiasm episodes ever, kind of poking fun at his. Uh his plight. Uh, so perhaps, yeah, that's uh, not that's... happening for, uh, Wanda, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's rough. I mean, you know, the guy, like he said, he's had a great career. He's about to become MLS's all time leading scorer. And it's a game in which the U S got completely dominated and would have been kind of stealing a birth. So like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't feel like he, his miss like deprived the U S of something they had, they deserved. So like, I feel like the context of the game should matter a little bit as well. It, it is a little bit, a bit harsh for that to be what defines his career. And it constantly comes up. I was watching a new documentary that's out uh, called American football, F U T B O L. If you want to check it out, that followed this group of young men uh, from the U S and they went all the way down through central America and into South America back in 2014 and wound up at the world cup in Brazil. And they, you know, it, it brought it all back because there was footage of them in the stands at that moment when Chris misses that shot. And so it's always going to be part of the history and of the, uh, the, the, you know, the folklore of not just the U.S. men's national team, just of American soccer. And, and you know, look, uh, he's going to get praise and, and accolades because he deserves them. And he is much more than that one miss, even though it will come to represent him and it has come to represent him. I don't think he's going to, you know... 
if if and when he breaks this record, there will be a very special and wonderful moment. But it's not doing it at a World Cup. And it will, unfortunately, no matter how big and special it is, it, for those of us that have been around, we know that Chris Wondolowski is so much more than that. And it could have been any of us in that position that shanked that ball. It just happened to be him. And that's his cross to bear. And he bears it with incredible grace and class in the way that, uh, that he handles himself, which is what, what makes him really not just one of the great MLS players, but one of the great American players ever to play the game. And certainly one of the great American goal scorers. But yeah, he'll forever be associated with that miss. And maybe he'll come uh, like Bill Buckner to kind of joke about it and 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 get past it. I, I can't imagine psychologically. Uh, I'm sure it takes its toll. But, you know, he is, as I said, a class individual that deserves to be looked in the context of so much more than a, uh, a historic shank at a World Cup. Anything else, Mossy? Nope, that's it. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for our... Back three segment where we look at some big and important stories from the world of soccer out there. What do we have in our back three this uh, week, Mossy? All right. First up, the U.S. men's national team has two friendlies coming up against Ecuador and Chile as they prepare for this summer's Gold Cup. Uh, Greg Berhalter named his squad. Uh, now, Berhalter earned rave reviews for his work in the January camp and some of the tactical wrinkles that he introduced. And now he gets to implement his ideas with better players, frankly, because you've got Pulisic and McKinney and Adams in the squad. Uh, what did you make of the squad? What are your overall thoughts on these upcoming friendlies? Well, I think a lot of people have been waiting for this to really uh, see what Greg can do because, like you said, of the integration of the players that I think everybody assumes are going to be the core of the team. And a lot of that core of the team is playing overseas and therefore wasn't available in the January camp. I would not necessarily assume it knowing Greg. I think that, that Greg is a thinker. Greg Berhalter looks at his team very much so in the sense of what the truest form of a team is, which is a sum of its parts, and that it's not about the best players, it's about the best collection of players. Now, that doesn't mean that Christian Pulisic isn't going to be evolved, but how they how they are integrated on and off the field into this, into this culture that he's already established, uh, I think is going to be very, very interesting. The other part is that some of these players, like Josh Sargent and, uh, and younger players that they have there, the... Olympic team, which I think has at times been unfortunately uh, looked upon as as secondary. I think that Greg Berhalter and the United States Soccer Federation recognize that with this incredible influx of young talent, there's an opportunity to cultivate a base and a core that can just augment what you already have from the national team to have them go through a qualifying process and to really use the Olympic team to make the national team better, which we have done in the past, and we haven't qualified for the Olympics over the last couple of cycles, and it's a real missed opportunity for the national team. So I think that players that aren't there that you want to see, everyone says, well, if you're good enough, you should be there. Yeah, maybe, but this might be a long-term type of play where while it's not as high profile, it actually benefits the player and therefore the national team much more to send some of these younger players and have them concentrate on going through a qualifying process and then doing well at an international tournament in the Olympics and and then have them graduate, matriculate, if you will, with that under their belt. I know that my experience in 1992 qualifying and going to the Barcelona Olympics was 
so valuable to me in terms of approaching the next two years and qual- and, and getting to the uh, World Cup in, the, in 1994 with the full national team. And there was a whole collection of us that matriculated out of that Olympic environment and that Olympic experience. And we were armed with that experience of qualifying and traveling and understanding culture. And I think that Greg Berhalter, in who he has picked and who he hasn't picked for this next uh, these upcoming games, when you're watching these games, recognize that there is work going on that you won't even see being done on the field. And that's why there's a bigger picture to be had when you are watching this team. But look, we're going to watch these these games because of the players that are in camp and because of these players that for the first time are going to be playing under Greg Berhalter. And you're going to want to see a change. You're going to want to see a team, and whether it's a Christian Pulisic or Tyler Adams or any of these players, you're going to want to see them doing something differently and with a renewed sense of opportunity and responsibility going forward. And I think that's what we saw in the January camp, and you hope that there's a continuation uh, now in these upcoming games. Yeah, that's interesting because Sargent uh, has lost some momentum at Bremen. He got off to such a great start, two goals in his first three games, and you felt like something really special is happening here. And then uh, he's had some some tough games since then. He's kind of dropped out of the 18 again. And so him not being on Berhalter's list, a lot of people put a negative spin on that and said that he's essentially kind of being demoted by presumably going to the under-23s. But you don't necessarily see it that way. You think regardless of how he was doing at Bremen, as part of the overall strategy here at his age, it might make more sense for him to play for the Olympic team. Yes, yes. I think that, you know, he, he, it's been heady days for him. And it's been a very rapid uh, but consistent type of progress, and I think I think he would benefit. I think I think that whole group will will benefit from the experience. I just we can't. I don't think we can afford to throw. We don't throw it away, but I don't think we can afford to waste any of it. And I think you have to, from a national team perspective, and that's by Greg Berhalter standing up and saying, "This is a priority. This is important. This is an integral part of me doing my job as the national team." And so who ultimately they pick, there's rumors about Jason Christ taking the team, who Greg Perlholter and and Ernie Stewart ultimately pick to lead that team. There has to be integration and an understanding of how they play, who plays with an eye on 2022 and making sure that whoever is involved and how they are involved is augmenting and helping that 22 team if and when they qualify, they go to the Olympics, and then they graduate onto the full national team. All right, next up, again, FIFA Council meeting. Alex Dowd got a little bit lazy this week, so we have the same topic essentially twice in this podcast. Uh, We've already (laughs) talked about the uh, Club World Cup, so the two other big headlines that come out of this FIFA Council meeting in Miami. First of all, Johnny Infantino is putting off a decision regarding expanding the 2022 World Cup to 48 teams, basically because he doesn't have the support right now. Um, He has not been able to convince Qatar to, to share uh, some of the games with other another Gulf state, presumably it would have to be Kuwait or Oman, or, and they want no part of that. And so he basically knows he can't get that uh, done right now. So he's put it off to their next meeting, which is in, in, in June or July or something like that. And so we'll we'll have a perhaps have a decision then on it. So just to hit on that for one second. So you're not surprised at all that Qatar is, is reluctant. And, and I mean, do you think this eventually gets done or do you have any sense for that or... All right, so yeah, two things. Uh, number one, uh, so you're saying Johnny Infantino can't create peace in the Middle East? Gee, what a surprise. Number two, the boat has already left. Uh, the train has already left, whatever you want to say, in that, you know, so when, when the U.S. started talking about the joint hosting with Mexico and Canada, 
you know, initially I was like, well, why, why are we sharing it with them? Well, there was a method to the madness. It was, this is the best way to assure that we are going to get the World Cup. Well, the problem is you already gave the World Cup to Qatar. So that you, you lost all of your leverage. They don't have to share it, okay? They can, and if I'm Qatar, I don't want to share it. I want, I want to, I want to maintain and have, you know, the, all the riches and everything come to us. And to the victor go the spoils. And I don't want to share those spoils with anybody if I'm, if I'm Qatar. Now, they'll, they'll revisit this. And, and as we've said in the previous podcast, I just think if you're going to expand it, just regardless of where the World Cup was going to be, but in particular because it's being held in basically Connecticut, uh, a, a country the size of Connecticut, then wait for the expansion to where you can truly facilitate it, both practically in terms of uh, the, uh, the stadiums, but also... Uh, in terms of the cooperation and the understanding that you're obviously, from what's happened so far, not going to get in that area of the world and wait for 2026 to expand. So it's not surprising to me, and, but I don't think this is over either. I think Johnny's going to continue to try to figure this out. And more power to him if he's able to figure out a way, and as we said before, that by expanding this tournament, it makes it better. And when I say better, not just the experience of the tournament, but better in terms of the region, then have at it. Anything else? Yeah. The only person in the world less qualified than Johnny Infantino to achieve peace in the Middle East is Jared Kushner. And unfortunately, oh, he's geez. the other one working on it. But uh, the other big headline, so we will have VAR at the Women's World Cup. We talked about it a few months ago that that was up in the air. But uh, so that's good news, right? I know you're a big VAR yeah, guy. It's, and, a, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it, that, that it took this long to figure it out, and I know they they were much more reactive than they should have been. I mean, this should have been done back when they were getting ready for the 2018 Men's World Cup. Uh, they should have had an eye to the future and the recognition that they had a Women's World Cup coming up. And I just think it's it, it's a no-brainer. I'm glad that it's got done, gotten done. Um, you know, I think it I think it reflects Jill Ellis's uh, opinion that she has stated on multiple times where, look, we just, whether it's men or women, doesn't really matter. We just want to make sure that we have it in place and we want to make sure we have the best people working it, which is what's ultimately going to happen. And this is, this is the new normal now. This is the new normal for soccer. This is a new normal for soccer in terms of the generation that watches the game. And it would be strange for, I mean, look, after what we went through last summer, it would be strange for you or me or anybody, uh, you know, Ali Wagner or anybody else now to watch a World Cup this summer, a Women's World Cup this summer, and not have it there. It would be felt that something is missing. And then it would also be, well, why is it missing? And FIFA would rightfully come into uh, plenty of criticism and, and fairly be criticized for not having it. So I'm glad that they that it took so long. Sucks, but at least they finally got it done, and, and ultimately we're going to have it this summer. It's interesting, like, the ping-pong nature of this VAR debate because it was introduced in the Champions League, and it was a bit messy there, and so all the VAR critics got to come out of the woodwork again and, and point out all the flaws in it. But then... You watch uh, football in England each weekend, and you see plays like Aguero's offsides goal against Swansea this past weekend, and then people say, "There, oh, how could you not have VAR?" So it's like it's a it's a can't live with you, can't live without you type situation. You know, when you have it, everybody picks it apart, and then when you don't have it, and there's a blown call, people complain, well, "Why don't you? Why don't you have it?" But you you've never come off your pro VAR stance. There's nothing you've seen in the last couple of years that's that's dissuaded you from that, right? No, not at all. And I, and I only think I only think it's going to get become more and more a part of the game you know is it a slippery slope maybe and we'll probably have that discussion uh as we get closer and closer to it but 
but I think that technology and, and obviously trying to get the calls right, and there's there's gonna it's gonna be tempting. There, the temptation will be there to add. Well, should uh, should every yellow card be reviewed, or how far back does the play actually exist, and what is the attacking phase, and all these different things? And the, you know, this is this is how the game evolves, and how it evolves relative to uh, to the technology over there. But I I remain a incredible uh, supporter and proponent of what it is now, what it has done for the game, and what it can be going forward. And like I said, I. When I watch a game that doesn't have it, I feel like something is missing. It's not a complete game. And that maybe is an indication of how far we have come so fast in the VAR world. Anything else, Mossy? All right, last topic. Uh, Zinedine Zidane's first match of his second spell in charge of Real Madrid took place this weekend. They beat mighty Celta Vigo 2-0 at home. Celta Vigo, who are in 18th place in La Liga and were without their best player, Iago Aspas. I love Zidane. I love him as a player. I love him as a manager. Just love his whole vibe. Uh, I think he's he's the coolest guy in the world. But uh, I have uh, I'm going to come off a little bit negative in this discussion because I have a couple thoughts here. But uh, what's your overall impression of Zidane being being back around Madrid now, one game in? Uh, did you think like the clouds have lifted again and him walking in the door and all of a sudden they're back to being around Madrid? It look. I, I think it's 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 not strange that he came back. You know, we've seen sabbaticals happen and we've seen Pep step away. And but it's strange that that he came back to the same team and he came back so quickly. And and when I say quickly, it was I kind of wanted that bookend of a year to happen. And it and it didn't. And it's not that I that I fear for him. I'm actually very interested to see what he ultimately does, but we we kind of can't really judge that until after the uh, after the summer. And that he went back to tried and true and 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 played the players that made him the legend that he is isn't necessarily surprising, but is it just a temporary fix? And so in a sense, we're going to really see what Zinedine Zidane is as a manager and if he can if he can be fluid and he can evolve and he can change um, because there is a job to be done and uh, and I don't know if it's if it's a job that Zinedine Zidane ultimately wants to do or or can do so it's uh, you know look it's still a little strange but it's fascinating I can't wait to see how it all plays out you yeah, this has been universally hailed as a stroke of genius on his part. He walked away knowing they weren't going to have a good season. Now he gets to come back as a savior with all the power and all the leverage. And I get that. Uh, that's a, a fair take to have. But again, it, it presumes that all he wants to be is the Real Madrid coach. I still think in a perfect world, there would have been another situation out there that was appealing to him. And, and to me, his legacy at Real Madrid is secure. The move was to sit out a year and then go try to have success in a different team in a different league like Pep's done post Barcelona and he would have enhanced his reputation more as a coach uh, by doing that I, I do think it's very weird for him to step away and then come back nine months later and I don't care how much money they give him this summer he's not going to be able to buy Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi's not going anywhere so he still has to contend with Messi and Barcelona domestically and it's hard to win Champions League titles even with Ronaldo it took a lot of luck for them to win all those titles and now he doesn't have that ace in the hole anymore so there's a very real possibility this second go around is not going to go as well as the first one it's not going to 
end as well. And we're going to look back and say, man, your legacy was secure there. You got to go out on top on your own terms. And why did you mess with that? And so I'm not as like super high on this move as everybody else is of Zidane going back. As far as this weekend, Real Madrid, the media just cracks me up there because look, uh, every time a new coach comes in, all he has to do is is change a couple of things around from the previous guy. They rattle off a couple of wins. And, all you know, Solari was like the second coming a few months ago just because he played Vinicius and they won a few games in the beginning. And it's so funny that the decisions that Solari made that were getting praise, like playing Vinicius instead of Gareth Bale, playing Reguillon and having the courage to drop Marcelo. Zidane comes back in. He starts Marcelo in the game, starts Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale scores. And all of a sudden, Zidane is getting praised for that. So they, they, they want to convince themselves. Like, I, I look at this Real Madrid squad, and they were never going to win La Liga or the Champions League this season, no matter who the coach was. But every time a new coach comes in, they want to convince themselves, oh, you see, if he had just played this guy or that guy, and, and, and you know, it, it, the old coach was getting it wrong, and the new guy has sort of figured it out. And, like, I, I just I don't, I look at the squad, and I don't see that at all. I mean, the one, the one argument you have is with Isco. It, it was bizarre to me the degree to which Solari ostracized Isco. And it was nice to see him back, and he scored a goal this weekend. The, the, like I said, Marcelo to me was deservedly dropped. He did not. I'm a big Marcelo guy. He did not play well, that well this season. And the kid that came in from Reguilon was great. So I don't know how anybody could make an issue out of that. And then the other thing is in, that is in goal. Look, I, I did a Mossy Makes the Case about this last summer. I think the way Real Madrid have treated Navas is a disgrace. They should have never signed Courtois. Navas should have been the start of the season. But if I were to make a list of all the reasons Real Madrid have had a bad season, Courtois' playing goal would not be even in the top 20. That has not been an issue. I can't remember one glaring mistake that's cost Real Madrid a game. And all these novice fanboys like Phil Shane have been trying to push this narrative all season. Every time Courtois gives up a goal, they say, oh, Navas would have saved that. Or, you know, they bring up stats of how many goals per game Courtois is conceding versus Navas. And to me, it's been a really forced narrative. And so for Sedan to come back in, play Navas' first game, and he played well. He made a couple of nice saves. He gets a clean sheet. And everybody's like, oh, you see, if Navas had been playing the whole season, this season would have gone very differently. I don't see that at all. So I think once again, the Real Madrid media is just forcing it here. And like you said, the acid test will come in the summer. The squad needs to be rebuilt. We'll see who they bring in. We'll see what he does next season. But I wouldn't interpret anything that happens in these remaining games as if to say that this season could have gone very differently if this guy would have played versus that one. I just think that's such a, a stretch to me. But you can you can see the appeal and the fascination and the excitement that comes from, for lack of a better phrase, getting the band back together, right? Although I guess in, in that in 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 that sense, it's getting the band back together without the actual lead singer in Cristiano. But <laughs> you can see why you know starting uh, Kaylor Navas in goal harkens back to a much more successful time, and that's why people get excited, right? Absolutely. Now, th- there is this narrative out there, though, that Z- what Zidane is doing, because, again, he's like the smartest guy in the room, and he's actually showcasing some of these players to boost their value so he can get rid of them in the summer and get uh, some decent money back, that he actually has it in mind to, like, rebuild this whole squad. And so some of these guys are going to play now. People are going to say, well, it just shows you that he- they have a future now because Zidane's back and he- they're playing under him. But actually, like, the Iscos and Marcelos and Bales and Navases, they might be out the door anyway in the summer, and he He's just sort of playing them here, like I said, to kind of boost their value a little bit. So that that that's that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Okay, so if 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 I gave you, and I'm not telling you where, just if you had to pick a coach for a team that you don't have players, you don't know where, so just yet picking a coach, would you rather have Pep or would you have rather have Zidane? Yeah, right now I, w- I would say Pep only because for precisely what I, I think he's he's gone. 
in other places and shown that he can sort of implement his system and his style of play, and, and it's a style of play that I like. And he's had he hasn't won the Champions League yet. We'll see if maybe he can do that this season. But he's had a fair amount of success elsewhere. I think that's still sort of an open question mark with Zidane. I know you've brought that up too. You kind of want to see him. Now, you could argue that doing it at Real Madrid without Ronaldo is in a sense you know, proving something right there. But I, I, I still think in a perfect world, I think we all would have liked to see him go to a Manchester United or Bayern Munich or something like that and, and, and succeed there. And I think then that would have ended any doubt about, you know, his, his, uh, his greatness as a coach. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that was because th- that's in the, in the back and forth and in the context of Pep Guardiola because that's what Pep did. And that's where, that's where my desire to see him do that rests. But the other part is, and I know it doesn't exist anymore, but... You know, if, for example, Zinedine Zidane comes back to Real Madrid and, you know, right back into the cauldron there, and he is able to rebuild that team without Cristiano Ronaldo and gets rid of all of those players who we understand took him to the promised land and what he based his initial reputation on and why his reputation was so good, that would be an incredible, that would be uh, Sir Alex-esque, if you will. And uh, I don't know if that's ultimately going to happen, but to be able to do that, I think that your assessment relative to Pep Guardiola would change dramatically and drastically if he were able to do that, no? Yes. Uh, no, like okay. I said, that that uh, it, it bears watching. But yeah, the, the Sir Alex uh, comparison is apt because, you know, when people compare Sir Alex to other managers that did it in a lot of different places, uh, Sir Alex defenders will say, well, he was at United for so long that he had to re- reinvent and rebuild that team three or four times and still won. So in a sense, he, he even though it was all at the same club, he proved that he can win with different kinds of players. So, uh, yeah, if Zidane is able to do that, too, yeah, I'll definitely have to reevaluate that. That's fair. All right. Anything else, Moss, before we head out? Uh, No, that's it. All right. That is it. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, Once again, uh, I am coming to you from uh, New York City. Mossy is coming to you from Los Angeles, but we wanted to make sure we got this out. I am overlooking, uh, as I said, a beautiful day here in New York City as I celebrate a, uh, I celebrate, you know, American soccer, what we talk about on a weekly basis and seeing the game through the eyes of red, white, and blue colored glasses. And what it is and what it is, uh, has become over the years uh, is something that should be celebrated. And so when I see something like what happened in uh, Cincinnati, if you can't tell, we are at my, uh, my one big uh, thing from today's podcast. And when I see something that happens uh, like Cincinnati, it, it, it gives me incre- incredible pride um, and it makes me incredibly confident about the future. And it doesn't mean that American soccer is perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't have flaws. It doesn't mean that we don't have challenges. It doesn't mean we don't have weaknesses. It also doesn't mean that we can't disagree. And certainly I spend much of my time uh, when it comes to social media um, and in general at uh, disagreeing with, di- with different people. But when I see something like what happened in Cincinnati this weekend, it reminds me about what American soccer culture is. And if you're listening this, to this right now, there's a good chance that you are part of that American soccer uh, culture. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that I say or Mossy says or anybody says, ultimately. But you are part of this thing that is growing, this, this living, breathing organism that continues to grow bigger and bigger each year. But it also continues to find its way and be incredibly unique, whether it's unique in the individual places that it crops up, like Cincinnati relative to 
Columbus or relative to New York or relative to Seattle, or whether it's just unique in the global context. We know that American soccer and American soccer fans and American soccer culture is different. It is unique. It is unlike anything else. And that's in part and in large part because of uh, the incredibly unique country and culture that it was born in. And relative to other countries and cultures, yes, it is still it is still young. But each and every week and each and every year and for as long as I can remember in my life, I have championed it because it is near and dear to me. I take it personally. I have ownership in it. I am proud to say that I have been around and I have seen it evolved out of the Wild West and the wasteland that existed in previous decades in terms of what we had on and off the field. And that there is a generation that is growing up and there was a kid that was born in Cincinnati over the weekend who whose context when it comes to soccer will include his hometown team, FC Cincinnati, that's a good thing. That's something to be celebrated. And uh, as I mentioned, at times I know I can be a grouch, but deep down, uh, believe it or not, uh, I can also be joyous and joyful and thankful and incredibly positive, and this type of thing deserves to be celebrated because it is a positive. It's a positive for everybody involved, and it's a positive for soccer. And that you are listening to this right now, you are a positive, and you can make an impact in terms of where this American soccer culture is going and how fast we progress and how fast we evolve and how successful we are by the things that you do. So Anything else, Mossy, before we head off? No, that's it. All right, listen, have a wonderful week. We will talk to you again next week. Next week, I will be back on the West Coast uh, in our studio with Mossy. We'll talk about all the week's events. Uh, Have a wonderful and safe week if you're watching soccer. Even if you're not watching soccer, enjoy it. Uh, We will talk to you again uh, next week, same time, same place. And as always, size the day.